podcast. Hi, this is Ruth. And this is Tina. And this is Talkin' Smash. The podcast where we wear scarves and talk about Smash. Tina, what scarf are you wearing? I am wearing an orange and yellow sort of um, ombre scarf. It is cotton and I got it in Italy. Oh, lovely. I am wearing a gray chiffon scarf. And um Yeah, that's uh it's it's very it's very drapey. I like it, it's flowy. Yeah, it's very flowy. It reminds me of Rebecca Duval, even though we, we just get a, a little wisp. We of just her. see her on a movie poster yes. and on a computer screen. <laughs> but more to come. All right. So today we are gonna be talking about episode nine, which is Hell on Earth. It was directed by Paul McGugan, who has directed all the things. Um and but the most important thing, in my opinion, that he has directed is the first episode of Scandal. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, which incidentally premiered one week before this episode of Smash. It is straight. This show seems like, you know, it seems like a dragonfly, like preserved in amber or something. <laughs> yeah. It's it's strange to think of it overlapping with shows that are like still kind of part of the zeitgeist. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, and it was written by Scott Burkhart, who is a staff writer for Scandal. He's part of the team. For Scandal? I'm sorry. I meant Smash. <laughs> that's the, that's, you know what? That's the show we do a podcast about. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> So, Tina, what was your scarf count My this week? My scarf count uh, was eight. Ah, my scarf count was nine. <gasps> Ooh, okay. This means we have to do a, a scarf rundown. <laughs> All right. So, first scarf was Karen had this rose-printed scarf. I, sorry, go to the replay. I actually counted nine scarves as well. So, let's see. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My head's in the game. Now. All right. All right. All right, so there was Karen's rose-printed scarf. Then at the audition that both Karen and Ivy go to, the casting assistant had like a pink pashmina-style scarf. And then, you know, then we went on like kind of like a scarf desert for Mm -hmm. long stretches of the episode. Absolutely. Uh, But then Derek pulled Mm -hmm. out his gray silk scarf again that Mm -hmm. he's worn before. And then Tom, when he went to attend... You know the the Republican fundraiser. Um, oh. At the beginning, he didn't have a scarf, but when he was leaving, he put on this like purple Dumbledore esque scarf. Oh, as he was leaving. Interesting. Yes. Okay. And um, then we have the Times Square scene, and then that's where the rest of the scarves that I counted happened. Oh, okay. Um, Karen had like a purple knit. Yes. And then there was an extra who did our classic smash head bob of like, wow, this is cool. It's happening. And he had a gray scarf. And then like um, two of the guitarists had scarves and so did the piano piano guy. Okay. So I think that you counted one more person in Times Square who had one that mm-hmm. I, I must have missed because I had both of Karen's scarves. I had Derek's. I had the woman at the casting session, but I also, I had an Ellis scarf that you did not count. I missed an Ellis scarf? Yes. In the, uh, the, when they're in Rebecca Duval's room, he has a red plaid scarf. Oh my gosh. I guess like, I'm just so mesmerized by Ellis's ties, I guess, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> 
at one point he had like a bright yellow one this week. He had a bow tie. Yes, a bright yellow bow tie. Yeah. Yeah. So, ah. So, yeah. So that, so yeah, we, so 10 is our, is our scarf count So we count have 10 then. total scarves. Mm-hmm. All righty. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about this episode. Yep. Okay. So everyone is getting back into their sort of. You know, oh, did we do the synopsis of it? No, let's okay. do that. So the NBC.com synopsis is the team begins their pursuit of a marquee star as Eileen charges Tom and Julia with finding a title for the newly reinvigorated musical. All right. All right. So to start off with, we kind of see everyone um, starting their day in this post-workshop world that we're in. Uh, Karen's getting ready for an audition. Ivy's also getting ready for an audition. And guess who slept over Ivy's apartment? Derek. Uh, And then at Julia's apartment, Leo and Julia are rushing out the door. They don't even have time for the breakfast that Frank cooked. (laughs) No, it's that trope that happens all the time of the stay-at-home parent Mm -hmm. making a feast for (laughs) breakfast. Like, there are pancakes and there's bacon and there's fresh fruit that's been like the stems have been removed and yes he chopped some strawberries Frank yeah Frank brought out his chopping knife once again he did but it's funny that bacon was still sitting on the counter later when we see (laughs) Frank again (laughs) but yeah oh and as um and as uh Julia's going out the door Frank is like wait the adoption paperwork and Julia says something about like oh yes it's on you know it's on my nightstand like by the side of the bed and I'm like "Uh oh Frank's gonna find something more than adoption paperwork. Yeah, nothing. I don't know what. Nothing good happens yes. on a nightstand. <laughs> and then at Tom's apartment, Tom and lawyer John are making plans for when they can see each other this week, like a full fledged couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, and then lawyer John, our paragon, <gasps> lawyer John reveals that he is a Republican. Now, do you believe he's racist? <laughs> Well, it makes it a little easier, I gotta say. <laughs> I, this broke my heart. Yeah. And Tom is holding a spoon at the time, and Tom's spoon droops. Yeah. Kind of like a someone losing an erection. Yes. Yeah. And it's so funny because this is like the first scene where Tom's uh, seen interested, interested in seeing John again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like actively, yes, making plans for yeah. when can I see you? Yeah. So then Frank is tidying up. Always looking for that adoption paperwork. Mm-hmm. And searching, searching, searching. He and comes across some sheet music on Julia's nightstand. And all of a sudden we hear the Julia and Michael Brooklyn Bridge adultery theme song start playing. And we know nothing good is going to come of this. So, um, oh, and then Ivy is... Uh, first, before her audition, she's having breakfast with Sam, mm-hmm. and she pulls out, like, a million pill bottles. Oh, yes. I wrote down what she's taking, because I have thoughts about this. Okay. So, she does not pull out pregnazone. So, I am unclear as to whether or not she's still taking pregnazone, which is a short-term That was her gateway drug. For yes. when you're on sick, when, mm-hmm. when you're sick. And here's what confuses me. Okay. So she's on the Ambien because the prednisone gave her insomnia. But if she's not on the prednisone, then why does she need the Ambien? Okay. Second, she pulls out Clonopin. So 
that is for anxiety. It's a little heavy duty for somebody who, as far as we know, has not seen a psychiatrist. Well, that's what I was thinking. Well, I thought a lot of things in terms of like, they're really laying it on thick with this pill business. Mm -hmm. And first of all, and second of all, did she like, she found one doctor who would give her all these different medicines? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then the third thing she pulls out is the Razapan, which is in the same class of drugs as Clonopin. They're both uh, benzos and they both treat anxiety and her description of why she's taking the the lorazepam makes no sense because she says i was so doped up that they put me on lorazepam but lorazepam is also something that's is is going to relax you uh-huh it's so not like i don't understand upper... how that's counteracting anything and frankly the as a as a patient <laughs> um and somebody who takes a whole lot of drugs Prescription drugs. Um, the clonopin and the lorazepam seem to be, um, they just seem to be re- repetitive. Um, and, so and redundant. I, and redundant. And <laughs> so I don't understand why she's on all three of these because also a benzo could be enough. Something for Something that's treating anxiety could simply be enough to help you sleep if you just need a little something to help you sleep. So I don't understand why she's not just on the lorazepam, which could possibly, at this point, if she's still having problems post-prednisone, could be enough. Yeah, well, I think I think the writers just wanted to load her up with... I think they just kind mm-hmm. of went through some sort of, like, drug thesaurus. Yeah. And we're like, all right, let's just pick four. So, I, I mean, I hate this because I just, I hate... I hate the, the just the anti-medication stigma that the show is perpetuating. And Sam's super judgy about what she's taking. But no, he says he's not. He's just concerned. Well, she is. I mean, if someone, yeah, someone who had never taken a drug before in their life all of a sudden told me that they were on, like, all these mm-hmm. drugs and that the reason they were taking the drugs in the first place no longer existed, I would be a little concerned. You know what would have made the scene better is if, because Sam is somebody who's such a good friend of Ivy's, he's in her bedroom, you know, he was there, you know, the first few nights that she was sick. What would have been great is if he had said, but Ivy, you know, you finished the prednisone like a week ago. Like if something indicated that she was taking medication past the point of needing it something like that and then she had and then she sort of like tossed off an excuse like that maybe would have indicated that she's doing something that's bad for her as opposed to just taking medication as prescribed i just think they need to they needed to i will say gravity does not well it's not well it's not granted in reality, first of all. But um, second of all, like, Ivy does not seem like a very sort of proactive or, like, responsible, educated patient in terms of, you know, even because, again, because they don't care about that because they, they just want us to get to the point where, like, she has, like, sure. her big pill meltdown. Um, but because even like last week it's like she only she she's she doesn't take the the pills on any sort of schedule it she takes the pills like when something annoys her Mm -hmm. we saw that happen this week and then the 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 lorazepam can 
be uh, lorazepam is something I've never taken, but it sounds similar to Xanax. And Xanax is something you take as needed. You take it when you are having a panic attack or when your anxiety is acting up. It's not something that you take on a scheduled basis. Yeah. But also, like, why would you have your sleeping pill in your purse with you? Well, apparently... Oh, that's right. No, because she, uh, you're right, she does pull up the Ambien. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Oh, maybe it's because sometimes she sleeps at Derek's. No, the kitchen is broken. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. I'm it just doesn't make, make sense. sense. No, we're, we're not going to make sense of this. So then we go to Eileen's office where our big four are, you know, Tom, Eileen, Julia, and Derek are talking again about names, like, because they need a star now. And... The the meeting does not go well. Tom and Julia, they don't storm out, but... But Derek they, is a whiny baby. <laughs> Derek is a whiny baby, though I will say... So Tom and Julia leave because they have to go and think of a title for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Eileen and Derek are left. And um, Derek is, yes, a whiny baby. But uh, one of the things he, he says is basically like, we had this workshop that didn't go so well um that failed or was mm-hmm. not a success and like what you have to admit is that tom and julia need more time and this needs more work and i don't want to like jump in i don't want to try to get a star until we actually have a finished script which is not an unrealistic request but he is a whiny baby about how he makes the request correct yeah all right, we agree. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I spent a lot of time looking at the posters in Eileen's office mm-hmm. this episode, and then also in Times Square, which I don't think you know says a lot about how riveting I found the episode. <laughs> but um, have, I don't know if this was in past episodes, but I noticed in in Eileen's inner office, not in the outer office where Ella sits, there was this poster that said Billy, and um, it wasn't Billy Elliot; uh-huh. it was just. Billy, and it kind of was black and white and had a guy like kind of mid cartwheel or something like that. And so I became fascinated with this and did a little bit of Googling and like, was this a real musical? Mm -hmm. And um, what I found out is, yes, there was a real musical that premiered in the West End in 1974 called Billy. Uh, it's very hard to Google it nowadays because you're just drowned out with, like, Billy Elliot search results. Uh-huh. But um, it starred that guy who was the original Phantom, I believe. Oh, um, Michael Crawford? Yes. And it was based on a book, and it was kind of... Uh, Billy is kind of like a Walter Walter Mitty-esque figure. He's kind of... He's an undertaker's assistant um, <laughs> who has, like, a rich fantasy life that then comes alive on stage and musical numbers and whatnot. And, and I was like... So this still didn't, but the poster for that 1974 production was not the poster in Eileen's office. Um, so I found there was a 2013 revival, um, and I could not find the poster for that. But also, this this was filmed in 2012. <gasps> so this is a mystery. I don't know. Wow. Okay. This is a very trivial, unimportant mystery. And, but it got me thinking of, um, 
because later on we go to Times Square and we see lots of posters there um, or billboards. But one other poster I noticed later in the episode um, as someone is leaving Eileen's office is there's a poster for American Idiot. And <laughs> I can't remember if it was there before, but it got, I got to thinking, like, wouldn't the, this been like a fun, cute little thing that the show could have done in terms of sneakily advertise for musicals? You know, kind of like sell space on Eileen's wall yeah. to people to advertise for musicals. I mean... You know, that's the kind of brainstorming that the guys uh, on Studio 60 on the Sunset <laughs> Strip would have come up with. Yeah. So, so yes, that, that is what Google taught me today. Um, so Derek storms out after that. And then uh, we go to the audition. And guess what? Ivy and Karen had the same audition. So they are going to run into each other. Ivy gets there late. She gives her name to the casting assistant who, you know, says to her, like, oh, you're late. And then who should walk out of the door of the audition room but Karen? And they bump into each other and both of their sunglasses fall off. And that won't become a plot point later on. (laughs) Um, So then... so then Karen leaves, you know, they say hi to each other. Then Karen leaves. And just as Ivy is about to walk into the audition room, she overhears them saying inside, oh, she was perfect, meaning Karen. And then another door slams in Ivy's face. This one literally instead of just metaphorically. Or Ivy. Yeah. Aww. So, but then we go to Karen, who is at the restaurant mm-hmm. where um, she works and she's talking to her good friend Leanne about trying to get back on the schedule and saying that she can pick up some shifts now that the workshop is over. And we haven't seen Leanne in a while. So um, we are going to contest her now. Leanne is played by Jennifer Akeda. So let's review what the contest is. It is a... Uh, test developed and created by Clarkisha Kent, who, by the way, has a Patreon now. So I will put the information for that in the show notes. And it is designed to determine whether a film or any other piece of media has provided the audience with adequate representation of femmes of color. This is meant to encourage discussion on what good representation can look like for femmes of color. And it is not the be all and all test. Um, so let's go so through it. So Leanne is Asian. That is why yes. we are contesting her. Yep. Okay. So A, the character must not solely be a walking stereotype or trope. She gets a point for that. Okay. Must have their own plot. Nope. No points there. <laughs> must not solely, not must not be solely included in the narrative just for purposes of Holding down some male character in his story. Uh, well, she gets a point she gets for that. A point for that. She doesn't. She get doesn't to talk to any male characters. No. <laughs> so must not solely be included in the narrative to prop up a white female character. No points for that. Must not solely exist in the film or piece of media for the purpose of fetishization. She gets a point for that. She's mm-hmm. not fetishized. And must have at least one interaction with another woman or femme of color. Nope. Um, must not be the go-to character sacrifice in a film or a piece of media. Nope. Yeah, she's not, you know. She's not sacrificed. No. So, uh, 
once again. <laughs> oh, we get another classic Smash 4 on, yep. this, on the Kent test. Yep. Yeah. So, you know. But Leanne bare is... Bare minimum. Yeah. <laughs> bare Leanne, minimum, this is not a harmful representation. Yay. Non-harmful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was thinking, like, Leanne is kind of like the Laura San Giacomo um, to, to Karen's Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Where, because she's the one who's who's like who's kind of been around the block and is like, you know, kid, sometimes yeah. these workshops don't go anywhere. Yeah. In fact, this is, I think, the first time that I get a sense that Leanne is also involved in show business. Oh, I always got that sense. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Because she was always talking about, like, you know, those workshops don't pay anything, yada, yada. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, so then, oh, but then Karen gets a call on her phone, which is now an iPhone, not like it was in the pilot when it was a BlackBerry. And guess what? She got the commercial job. Yay! So Ivy already knew that, but Karen did not. So she goes off to tell Dev the wonderful news. And then we go, we, we're back in Tom's apartment, and Tom is spiraling a bit about the news he just learned that lawyer John is a freaking Republican. <sighs> um, it was not such a bad thing in 2012. Not that it was a good thing, but it was, yeah. And meanwhile, Julia is brainstorming names for the musical. What could it be? American star, American, American whatever. Icon. They're all terrible titles. Yeah. She's unaware of the storm that is about to hit her mm-hmm. when she goes home. And then we go um, to the theater where Hell on Earth is being performed. So we get to see Ivy back at work performing a musical number in Hell on Earth. And guess who's here? It's so exciting. It's it's Norbert Leo Butts. (laughs) Yay! Who has, um, who is just, you know, I saw, okay, Norbert Leo Butts has three Tonys, I think, at this point. Three? I didn't do a, a Tony count on him. I'm I mean, I gonna... know he has one for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yes. And that's the only thing I'm positive about. Okay. But he is just, he's just a fireball of energy. He really, and really a, is. a delight. Yeah. Like, this is, this is the type of role he should play. <laughs> like, <yeah>. Yes. <laughs> like, they should make this musical so he can play St. Peter. I, yes, I really enjoyed this bit of Hell on Earth that we yeah. see. I enjoyed, like, you know... The Norbert Leo Butts of it. Yeah. I enjoyed the costumes yeah. and all the showgirls with their with their feathery angel wings. Yeah. I I love a light up staircase, mm-hmm. especially a spiral light up staircase. That was that was great. Oh, and, and did you catch the who's yeah Corey, got, Corey? Well, his oh. real name yeah. I I think we're thinking of the same thing. James Monroe. Yes, James Eaglehart. 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 Yeah. Yes, I always think of him as. Coriolanus Burr, because that's the name of his character on Kimmy Schmidt, oh. where he is the nemesis of Titus Andromeda. Okay, I haven't gotten, because I, I only ever watched like the first three episodes. So again, he is another Broadway stalwart. He was the genie in the musical Aladdin on Broadway. And we saw him playing Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson. That's right! And he was great. So that, uh, that means we have another Hamilton cast member that we didn't even count well, previously. Yeah, because, yeah. We need to start doing a running Hamill count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to say, like, I would, I would go see Heaven on Earth. Based on that little bit, yes, I, I would, would see, see that. this show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then we're back in Eileen's office. It's late at night, and Ellis <gasps> has called Eileen's former assistant into the office to help him 
look at names in a computer. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we really needed this scene, but um, we get it anyway. I mean, I'm glad we get the scene. I don't know why it had it to. It had to be at Eileen's office, where especially it would be they would be in trouble if Eileen walked in. So mm-hmm. they're doing this at her office. And all they need is working internet connection. <laughs> well, because I, I wasn't clear. So they're looking at something like scrolling through like Eileen's digital Rolodex or oh. just like Googling things. Okay. But anyway, Ellis is trying to think of people that he himself can possibly contact yeah. to get a star for the musical. And um, they come up with a name, Randall Jones, who we'll see later. So then Julia finally comes home from oh. her day of trying to think of a title, and there is Frank, and he is at the piano, and he is playing the piano and singing the, this is the first time we are hearing the words to the the Julia Michael Adultery song, which apparently is a real song that I guess Julia or Tom had written, and that Julia has written lyrics to, uh, you know, kind of recounting their affair. And the lyrics are basically... Bliss Kiss Bridge. I worked with you, Michael Swift. (laughs) We had an affair. We walked on the Brooklyn Bridge, Michael Swift. You and me, Julia. (laughs) Yeah. So Frank confronts her Mm -hmm. about this betrayal. I did notice the bacon was still on the counter. Well, you know what? Who can clean up bacon? Exactly. But so he has been sitting at that piano and like playing this song for like, Hours and yeah, and so we get this, we get this devastating scene between them where he's um, so angry. I'm glad he's angry. Like it's just I don't know. I I like this scene. I like that he's 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 pissed, and I just I think they're both. It's well acted and well written, and she doesn't lie. Well, she does. She omits information. She omits that this is the second affair <laughs> well yeah well and she doesn't like cop to it right off the bat she's she kind of does it like oh I, what are you talking about oh what do you mean but she she cracks pretty quickly and yes. it's then just like i'm sorry it was a mistake and um but yeah i i do like that you know he kind of just got to be angry mm-hmm. and um also they you know they let him like look handsome in this scene yes. which was nice um and then he basically, you know, at, at one point says, like, you know, you don't get to decide, like, how this goes or, you know, how big of a deal this mm-hmm. is and storms off. And then she just sobs into her hands. Yeah. And Also, I like that this scene shows male anger that isn't threatening. That was just a... Like, she reaches out to him at one mm-hmm. point and he kind of, like, pushes her hands away. Mm-hmm. You kind of saw in her face, like, this moment of, like, whoa, okay, oh, yeah. I've got to... I've got to back off. Yeah. Um, and so I like there was danger in the scene, but yes, there, you never felt that anyone was like at risk of being physically harmed. Exactly. But there was danger in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He, it's, it's almost like he, he's like a, uh, I don't know, like a, like a snake where if you, if you reach out, he'll bite you, but he's not like, it's so different from how Michael Swift is dangerous even though I don't think we're supposed to find him dangerous, but he's like just really creepy for so many episodes. And, you know, we talked previously about how we were worried that if Julia made him angry, he would do something like he would 
you know, tell everybody he would make a scene, he would show up unannounced, he would, and I just like, I just like how earnest and honest Frank is, and it just, it's an authentic display of anger where he just doesn't, he doesn't want to be touched. He just doesn't want to be touched. Yeah. He's not going to hurt Julia. That's not the, you know, there's yeah. no implication that he would hurt Julia. He just, he just does not want to be touched right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we leave Julia there just like in shambles um, to go to the commercial shoot that Karen <laughs> Uh, has booked when we get to see like it's an entire like everything everything in the space is entirely green because the entire commercial is going to be green screen and we get to see Karen in like a, a little green like froggy bodysuit including yeah. like covering everything including her hair so you just see her little face um and that was just a ton of fun and she's still like ha- she's still somehow like beautiful <laughs> it's like she is still beautiful yeah. in that like bright green you know, spandex jumpsuit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of astounding. Yeah. Um, and I, you know what I liked about this? It made me think of uh, Slings and Arrows, the final season of Slings and Arrows where um, the, you know, the female lead, um, she gets a TV oh, show. Yes, where she's playing like an alien or something. Yeah. And so she goes and it's all, and it's sort of the same thing where it's like, she's like, okay, and, and, and where is this? They're like, oh, it's going to be green screened in or, you know. <laughs> and so it's the same thing where these theater people, to them, television and film is the worst because it's not real. Theater is real. It's the truth. <laughs> but yeah, and also like Slings and Arrows. Oh, because in season one of Slings and Arrows, the ingenue there also booked a commercial. That's right. Yeah, except she had a like humiliating audition, but she booked it anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, yeah, so, so then we return to the Frank of it all. And Frank has... Um, Somehow, doesn't matter how, found out where Michael Swift was well, going to be. He's doing the Bruno Mars show at La Mama. Of course. How could I forget? <laughs> so, um... And Frank kicks his ass. It's so great. <laughs> well, he punches him. That's yeah, it. Yeah, because Frank confronts him, and uh, first Michael, again, for a minute, tries to be like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And then it's like, dude, I'm so sorry, man. You know, this was over long ago. It never should have started up again. That's my bad, dude. <laughs> um, and Frank is like, wait, what? Started up again? And then he punches him. It's, yeah. It's good. It's just a, it's, Frank is, this is a. Well, I, the thing I didn't like about this, yes. and I don't care if Michael Swift gets punched, you know, but um, I feel like they, you know, they let Michael Swift be all kind of like sexy and edgy in his like, you know, black leather motorcycle-esque jacket. And they put Frank in like this dowdy, like plaid, L.L. Bean raincoat kind of thing. Um, oh, okay. And I thought that wasn't, you know, That's an fair. In- I had a very different observation about the costuming in okay. the scene. What I noted was how similarly they were dressed. They... They were both wearing black jackets. You are correct that there was an L.L. Bean vibe to what Frank was wearing, and he did have a plaid lining yes. to his jacket. And 
so I sort of saw it as a side-by-side comparison of the two where Frank looks better because he's the one who is right. He's the one who was true. He's the one who isn't the liar, the scoundrel. It's like you threw Frank away just to what? Get a slightly shinier version of this guy? That's kind of what I saw from the scene and the costuming. Because I just noticed they were very similarly dressed. Okay. Well, yeah. This is interesting. We're having kind of like a Devil Wears Prada moment mm. where, you know, the they had the two turquoise belts and the one person was like, <laughs> I don't know. It's so difficult. They're so different. And <laughs> then what's the main character in that movie is named Andy, I think, because mm-hmm. she's such a cool chick. But Andy's like, oh, they're the same. But... um. Yeah, so you saw them as the same. I saw them as different, you know? Mm-hmm. Similar, con- with some consciously different elements, mm-hmm. I would say. But yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and Frank punches him, which is not the greatest way to express your feelings, but... Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm not anti-physical violence. <laughs> <laughs> It's always okay to punch Nazis and people who sleep with your wife. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So then we go to um, a very fancy Manhattan bar where Alice is having a drink with a pale redheaded young man who uh, we learn is Randall Jones. I noted that it was a sexy businessman drink. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they've got fancy grown-up martini-esque drinks. And this is where um, Alice is trying to sell this person. This person is um, affiliated in some way uh, you know, with uh, Rebecca. What's her name again? Rebecca Duvall. Rebecca Duvall, who is one of the star names that got thrown out earlier in the episode. Um, and so Alice is trying to sell him on putting you know, this Maryland musical at the top of her list of things to read. And, um, yeah. Oh, and we have a very kind of uh, Tom Ripley moment here for Alice in terms of, you know, they have this whole conversation and Alice is like, oh, it's so great to, like, connect with you again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then Randall's sort of like, oh, uh, wait, how, how do I know you again? Yes. <laughs> And he doesn't know him at all. Mm-hmm. But yes, Ellis is pulling a little a little Tom Ripley. And then, meanwhile, at a different fancy Manhattan restaurant, Eileen is having dinner with the guy I noted as just the decoy director. Um, <laughs> Doug Hughes. Doug Hughes. Who directed uh, Doubt? Oh, was is he Doubt? a real director? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, that would explain... Okay, that would explain why he... Yeah, was... Not an actor. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's not a guy who directs musicals. Uh-huh. I know that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who should walk in to see Eileen meeting with a director who's not Derek? <gasps> but Michael Riedel. From Theater... the New York Post. Yes. Gossip columnist. Theater gossip guy. So I wonder if this will end up in the papers. <gasps> yeah. And then Ivy's also out at a bar with the whole gang because they're going out to celebrate her being back in heaven mm-hmm. on earth. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, just trying to make her feel better because, you know, clearly her first performance back, she was a sad pumpkin. She was not, she was not doing a great job at her first performance back. She was, yeah, her face was not selling that she wanted to be there. So then Bobby happens to mention the news that Karen booked the commercial and... Yeah, this this does not make Ivy any happier. Um, And she has a great line complaining about, like, basically Karen walking in with her Midwestern moon face and just getting all the jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, So then, like, Ivy walks out, even though Tom has just arrived and is there to, like, speak to her because they haven't spoken, presumably, since Tom gave her the news that she was fired. So... Ivy goes back to her apartment where Derek yeah. already is. He's just hanging out there it's reading scripts. Is That's very couple-y behavior. It's very couple-y. I, uh, he must hate his apartment with its death staircase. <laughs> He's afraid of falling. Maybe someone is, like, doing the floors. <laughs> there you go. Or, you know, that pesky gas is out again. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. And Ivy realizes she has Karen's glasses. And she just throws them in the garbage, yes. which I enjoyed. I enjoyed that, too. And then we see Karen in her apartment. She's just bought a new purse to celebrate her fancy commercial gig. And she notices that she has Ivy's glasses. And she's like, oh, dear, I must return these to her. Um, because she's Karen. She's a little ray of sunshine. Oh, and Derek gets a phone call where, you know, the news, the Michael Riedel gossip has already hit the streets that Eileen's talking to other directors. And he storms into Eileen's office the next day. And basically, Eileen's, Eileen's masterful plan has worked. And Derek is um, back on board because yeah. he is a dog in the manger and doesn't want someone else to get the job. Mm-hmm. And he puts on his gray silk scarf to go and confront her. <laughs> yeah. And then we are backstage again at Heaven on Earth because it is... There's a show every night. Yeah. Um, And we see Ivy kind of just sitting and looking at her mirror. Um, And she still has all these Marilyn books on her her little workspace there. And she's still got all these Marilyn pictures taped up in the mirror, just like at her apartment. She still has the Marilyn pictures taped up on the mirror. Oh, and there's also, there's a... There's all the Marilyn photos, mm-hmm. and then there's, like, a clearly stock photo of a little blonde girl hugging yeah. a brunette woman. And I feel like that they must have put that in in, like, the very first episode before they had cast who Ivy's mother was actually going to be. Mm-hmm. And because I think clearly it's supposed to be Ivy and her mom before, like, they knew who her mom was. And then no one changed the picture <laughs> once, <laughs> well, once they got Considering that Ivy kind of sort of hates her mom, maybe it's, like, the fun aunt. <laughs> Or maybe it just is a photo from a frame that she's like, you know what? I wish I had that, Mom. Oh, so sad. Yes. Oh, and then we quickly cut to the penthouse apartment of Rebecca Duval. Ellis, you know, Randall Jones is in there, and Ellis knocks on the door to get on his sexual gamesmanship. He basically comes on, takes off his little... His bag. His messenger bag. His messenger bag is like, so what do I have to do to get this at the top of her pile? And yes, hijinks ensue. Bisexuality confirmed. <laughs> oh, then we're back in, uh, at the theater and backstage and there's a, a stage manager rushing up to Ivy's door, knocking on it frantically because oh. she is late for her, um, wh- you know, for where she is supposed to be. 
and we get this very fancy overhead shot of her. I think the director really liked getting shots of her in those angel wings. Yeah. From, like, fun angles. Because he does it again later in the episode when she's back at her apartment. Mm -hmm. We get another overhead shot of the girl in the angel wings. And then um, we quickly... (laughs) This has nothing to do with anything, but it's, like, the exact opposite of of Game of Thrones, where there's these fantastic costumes that you never get to see. I know, because they're too... Because it's it's too dark. dark. Yeah. (laughs) And like, can you imagine like the hours they spend like embroidering oh these my things? God. And yeah, yeah. But someday someone will zoom in, or you know, they'll make a super extra Blu-ray, yeah, where people will actually be able to see all the work that goes into those. Um, so uh, we quickly, you know, drop so, in at the Ivy. Yeah, not we, not doing so hot. Yeah, yes. on the floor there. Oh, because she goes on stage, you know, so we saw that number earlier in the episode, just so we can see it again now, where Ivy is fucking it up. Um, So Ivy is, okay, here's a question. So, okay, obviously Ivy has, the heavy implication is that she has taken one too many pills. My question is, were the drinking scene, is that before the show is that like are they having a like a liquid lunch between matinee no i think that was no i think that was the night before okay and because it was dark out and everything so i think that was presumably oh that's her first night back we're gonna go out for drinks or whatever yeah yeah and so so at this point, there's as far as we know, there's nothing in her system except lots and lots of pills. Though there was also some sort of fancy alcohol bottle. There was on a her very fancy bottle of presumably alcohol. Yeah, that's just. I mean, that's a large, obvious bottle of alcohol to sort of like have. And we never yeah, in see her, her dressing room. Yeah, it looked like it looked like a Crown Royal bottle. Yeah, but we never see her open it. So I, I, I got no sense that there was alcohol in it and that or that she had drunk from it and i'm just again listen okay you know i'm not a pharmacist i'm not a doctor i'm not i'm not even a scientist (laughs) but i just i question if that combination of drugs would make her act like this or if she would just be asleep on the floor by now. But I know that if you take, like, I know that if you take something, especially if you're taking something for the wrong reason, like if you're, if you're taking something, like if you're taking anti-anxiety medication, but you don't have anxiety, you, you get freaking high. That's why, you know, people, sometimes Xanax is used as a party drug and um, some of what she's taking is similar to that. Okay, I've convinced myself. Okay. All right. Her reaction <laughs> makes sense because it's not like she's taking this to treat anxiety at this point. Okay. Yeah. She's just taking it because they're there. Um, so, yeah. So, she is, at first, she's having a grand old time mm-hmm. as she is stumbling around the stage, messing everything up, mm-hmm. singing lines that she's not supposed to sing because mm-hmm. they're Norbert Leo Butz's lines. Um, and you know who witnesses all of this? Karen, because- who has come in to return the glasses. So yes, so Karen sees it all from the side of the stage. Oh, did you notice that one of the lyrics references Trump? Yes, I did. Yes, 
Um, so yeah, Norbert Leo Butts' character is like kind of a St. Peter or whatever, some kind mm-hmm. of gatekeeper to heaven. And uh, one of the lines he says is, let me th- see if I've got it right. You know, but basically he's giving all these lines of like, oh, I might not be, you know, you got to be careful because I might not be letting you in. And he says, yeah, you're fired when, you know, hey, you're fired when you've expired, Donald Trump, you know. So, yeah. Oh, what wacky times. So then um, Norbert Leo Butts, like, tells, you know, kind of picks, she fall, Ivy falls at one point, and Norbert Leo Butts, like, picks her up, and, like, in the middle of the number says, like, get off the stage. And She's like, I'm getting off, I'm getting off. Yeah. And then, so she runs out. Apparently not just off the stage, but out of the building, <laughs> because the next we see her, she is in Times Square, still in costume. It's wandering around. Yes, and Karen has followed her because Karen is, uh, you know. A do-gooder. A do-gooder. She's Mahatma Karen. <laughs> <laughs> but then they actually, like, they actually have a confrontation, and I like it. I do, too. I I just like it. I like the writing on this episode. Yes, because, and yeah, again. Because this is an earned confrontation. Yes, because, again, it has been building up since mm-hmm. episode one, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes, Karen, like, gets to be, like, hostile to her and angry. She doesn't just get to be, like, you know, all sweet and saintly. Mm-hmm. Although and she does apologize the second she says something mean to Ivy. Well, she is still Karen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but basically, you know, they finally have kind of like their confrontation about um, who got the part and why they got it. Yeah. And and Karen says like the thing that, you know, has sort of been the little worry in Ivy's mind this whole time, which is, you know, Karen says like, hey, you slept with him. You know, you slept with Derek. Yeah. And don't think he did, you know, and don't think you're the first one he asked. Yeah. Because you weren't. Yeah. Which... It's true. And um, then Ivy just takes a beat. Oh, she gathers and she says, my mother said worst, worst things at Sunday dinner. School nights, too. Because <laughs> Karen immediately apologizes. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I said something so mean. Um, but Ivy's like, you know, I can take whatever you can mm-hmm. dish out. Karen Cartwright. Moon face. <laughs> So then we've got more Karen and Ivy coming up, but just to segue quickly, meanwhile, Tom has actually gone to the the Republican fundraiser to support Lawyer John. Yeah. And I feel like he's put on, like, gay Republican cosplay. He is. Yeah, he puts on, like, a a three-piece suit with a vest, and everything's buttoned up all the way. Yeah, he's drinking scotch at the party. Mm -hmm. Like, he's really, like... Because Julia, you know, at, at the apartment earlier had s- suggested that he really give it, give it a try in that uh, this is, you should, for, you know, remember that everybody has their faults. So this is sort of like at Julia's urging to, mm-hmm. you know, maybe try to let this whole Republican thing go. Yes. So, yeah. So Tom, Tom's doing it. And uh, I'm wondering, is this like a, is this, is this just a room full of gay Republicans, because there's that sentence that that uh, lawyer John says about we can't just support; we have to put forth our own. Yes, candidates. we can't be a minority in our own party. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and I did notice uh, prominently at, at the front of the crowd when lawyer John is giving his speech, like there are two men holding hands. Okay. So I think we can I think we are supposed to 
Uh, I think we are supposed to assume that this is a gay Republican fundraiser, and who knew there were that many? Um, but they have filled, yeah. So, but anyway, Tom gets the call that something has gone down at the theater, and um, apparently, like, the the audience was so irate, some people are asking for their money back, which struck me as false and weird, because, it, you know, in, in the course of the show that they're watching, that was, like, like 30 seconds of of the overall... yeah. Yeah, and it was not, like, a big deal. So. Yeah. But anyway, Tom is going to rush out to take care of Ivy because, you know, Tom likes a little drama, I think. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the reason he and Ivy are friends. And uh, Lord John gives him a bit of pushback, but it's... I was worried that it was going to turn into, like, a fight, but it's it's it, it didn't. It, but he gives him a little pushback, like, she's a grown-up, you know? Yeah. Um, and then... Um, uh, Tom has like a fun exit where he's like, I like you. I don't like Republicans. Yeah. But I like you. Just not the Republicans. Yes. And lawyer John like smiles at that. Yeah. Like he's enjoying this little repartee. Yeah. So they've still, yeah. they still might have a future, Tom and yeah. lawyer John. All righty. Yeah. Then uh, we also um, touch back in at Julia's house where. Uh, Leo is very upset. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of going back to like <laughs> early days, Leo again, where he's like, Mom, "Mom, how could you tell him, Mom? Everything was fine, Mom. Um, this affair was between you and Michael Swift and me." <laughs> oh, so it's like, Mom, you messed this up, and now Dad's leaving. Yes, because Frank has come back. He is upstairs packing a bag. Um, and I love then, how their place is so big that they live in. Yeah, they live in New York City. I know it's Brooklyn, but yeah. still, that's New York City. And they have outdoor space. Yeah, they have stairs, and they yeah. and they live in like a historic part of Brooklyn too, because it's Carroll Gardens, right? That I think they established that early. Oh yes, on. when she ordered a car for Michael yeah. Swift. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's home and doesn't realize a member of the household has come back. Oh, yeah, because she's outside on, you know, she's out on the deck, like, staring off into the night, you know, feeling bad. So um, Frank comes downstairs with his bags, ready to to go out the front door, and she tries to stop him. And she's like, no, no, Frank, don't do this. I need you. We need you. She pulls Leo in, into this, to try to, you know, she uses her child to try to um, help out her, you know, her, her case, yeah. yes. But Frank is having none of it, and he leaves. Yeah. I found this, again, believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, believable. Yeah. And it probably was not the coolest move to try to, like, you know, use your child as mm-hmm. a, you know, as a shield in this. But, yeah, eh, she's doing everything she can. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then we are back uh, to Ivy. Mm-hmm. She has wandered into a liquor store. Karen is still following her. Um, Ivy plays drunk. Sorry, not Ivy. Megan Hilty. <laughs> Megan Hilty, the actual actor who plays Ivy. Megan Hilty does plays drunk so well. Well, at this point, she's still just high. But yes. But oh, then, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Hi. Yeah. Yes, she's doing this well. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. I just think she's a really, really good actor. Yeah, I agree. So she um, hits Karen Cartwright up for a twenty. Yeah. I just love the writing, too. I'm going to keep complimenting the writing. Scott Burkhart, good job. Um, she's like, 
She's like, oh, come on, you feel bad. You want to be nice to me? Give me a 20. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, oh, yeah, well... Yeah, we'll get to this. But yeah, one of my one of my favorite tropes is like when female enemies put, you know, like call a truce and like, you know, either work together or just like decide to have like a boozy time together. Yeah. So, yes, female enemies putting their weapons down. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so Tom has rushed to, I guess, Ivy's apartment or somewhere where he runs into Sam, uh-huh. um, who somehow has gotten a text from Ivy, who had her cell phone tucked down the cleavage of her costume or something. How did she have a cell phone? Maybe Karen, who probably keeps her list of contacts updated to, like, the second. Karen proactively reached out to Sam, knowing how close they are, and realized that he must be worried. Yeah, except yeah, ex- but yeah, I think that's what that's what I talked myself into too. But then, but Sam does say that Ivy texted him, not like Karen texted me. Maybe Ivy borrowed Karen's phone and said, "Hi, this is Karen's phone." Uh huh. <laughs> but I'm Ivy, and uh-huh. I'm with Karen. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. And so, in fact, I would think that that is how that text would read <laughs> because because she's not. You know, sober. Yeah. <laughs> so then, you know. I like this scene. Yeah. <laughs> Sam is super smooth in this scene. Are we still, well, are you talking about when they're in the diner or? Yeah, when, when Sam and Tom meet up. Okay. Well, they first, they meet up on the doorstep and it's like, oh, <gasps> you got a dramatic text from Ivy. You know, I heard a dramatic thing from Ivy too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we cut back to Karen and Ivy having a grand old time in Times Square mm-hmm. um, and having an impromptu musical number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, where they sang some, like, song that was popular on the radio at the time. They're singing a Rihanna song. Okay. They say, cheers, drink to that. Yes, and um, a whole crowd gathers, and it becomes, like, a whole big thing, and we get to see all these, like, Times Square signs, which was kind of, like, a little snapshot in time for Mm -hmm. the most part in terms of, like, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. (laughs) That's right, that was a Broadway musical. And Phantom and American Idiot. Um, that's what really got me thinking of like, are they doing product placement for like musicals? Oh, and then we see also um, a big billboard for a movie called Casual Friday 2 <laughs> with Uma Thurman's face on it, except it doesn't say Uma Thurman, it says Rebecca Duval. <gasps> dun, 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 stay dun, tuned dun, dun. there. Oh, and another weird thing there was a billboard for Gypsy. And I looked into this. Uh-huh. Um, so there was no gypsy plane no. at the time. It was actually uh, like the logo from the Bernadette Peters gypsy back in like whatever it was, 2004, that they digitally put in. Oh, so I think what must have happened is there was something, um, some Times Square thing that they couldn't clear Okay. Like, it could have been, like, maybe it was an advertisement for a Fox television show or an ABC television show or just whatever. But they couldn't clear it for whatever reason, and so they're just like, okay. Yeah. Hey, Bernadette Peters, can we just use your old gypsy poster? Yes? Great. Thanks. And it would be cool if Lee Conroy was, like, currently doing it, and that's why they, like, specifically asked her to sing Everything's Coming Up Roses. Mm Mm-hmm. Headcanon, yes. All right. 
Karen and Ivy have their big alfresco Times Square musical number. Mm -hmm. They keep taking turns wearing the glasses, (laughs) which is fun. (laughs) Yes. um, Then they're back at Ivy's apartment in... You know, Ivy flops on the bed. She's still in her costume and her angel wings. And um, we get another nice overhead shot of her mm-hmm. in the angel wings. And Karen. Karen gets to, like, look around Ivy's apartment mm-hmm. while she's kind of, like, flopped out on the bed. And she sees kind of all the work that Ivy put in for yeah. Marilyn. She sees all the photos taped to the mirror and the wall. And, you know, gets to see the vul- vulnerable side of her, mm-hmm. of her enemy. Yeah. And offers to make her tea. Mm-hmm. And then we get Tom and Sam having some... Bro time. Yeah, some bro flirtatious time. bro time in the diner. Yeah. Talking about bears and hockey and stuff. <laughs> By the way, that is such a great joke. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that was just a fun joke. It's like, what's a Bruin? A bear. Oh, no, not... That's a team. <laughs> <laughs> not that kind not of that bear. Kind of bear. Yeah. By the way... Do you notice how Tom refers to Lawyer John in this scene? Someone I was seeing. Oh, oh Tom, you dog. Mm-hmm. You went to a Republican fundraiser for him. Yep. He's your boyfriend. But I guess maybe Tom doesn't want to admit that to his new little flirtation buddy, Sam. He wants to downplay it a little bit. He has never, ever admitted that John He's is never boyfriend. verbally confirmed that... John is his boyfriend, but yeah. Um, then uh, it's the next day, presumably, we're at Eileen's office again, and Ellis, after working for Eileen for, I don't know, a week, <laughs> is like, I want to be a co-producer on this Maryland musical. Because I did a thing yeah. at my job. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, Eileen just cuts him down to size and it's beautiful. Yes. Without like, without breaking a sweat with a mere flick of her wrist, Mm -hmm. basically it's like, Oh really? You know, so you know how to do this and that and the other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but then the phone does ring. Mm -hmm. Rebecca Duvall's people have called, I guess, you know, Tom's, I mean, Ellis's sexual prowess. Yes. A, a game. Yes. You know, so they are interested in having Rebecca Duvall join this project. But Eileen basically walks into the offices and says, well, you better put that call through because, you know, that's how Ellis starts his whole I want to I want a promotion mm-hmm. thing where you're saying, I don't want to just answer phones anymore. And I will answer the phone if I don't get to be a co-producer. Like, it's like, who else is going to answer the phone? <laughs> like, it's just the two of them. But, um, but he does answer that phone right mm-hmm. quick after... Uh, after their little discussion. Yes, and then we cut to uh, where it's night again somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, we're outside the Westway Diner where Michael and Julia shared that erotic pie a few weeks ago. Um, she has called him up and, you know, asked to meet for whatever reason. Because they have to meet in person. Yeah. To make sure. Well, that's just TV laws. But yeah, yeah. and also she just, I think she just wants to see she him. She wants to see him. Um. And he says, hey, sorry for blowing your cover there that this wasn't a one-time affair. This was a two-time affair. Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you say that, that Frank hearing that from Michael Swift was a bit of a bombshell? It was a bombshell <laughs> because Julia says, like, you know, I'm not going to let you take the blame. I'm responsible. I did this. And Michael Swift is so turned on by that. Oh, he is. Yeah. 
Uh, I think he likes your glasses, too. Mm. Yeah, I think he's turned on that as well. But anyway, and she says, my whole life has exploded like a bombshell. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Cut to fade into a title page <gasps> with the word bombshell on it. Music by Tom Levitt. Book and lyrics by Julia Houston. Who would have thought that Julia's personal heartbreak would somehow lead to a great title by the end of the episode? It's a good title. Too. It is a good title. Yes. So, so we end the episode with you know t- Julia at Tom's apartment. It doesn't seem like she has told him her bombshell mm-hmm. that Frank has found out and her life is in ruins because he's just like bombshell. Yeah, I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's great. And we just see Julia sadly staring out a window. Mm-hmm. And scene. You want to know something incredibly surprising? There is, like, no smash lash against this episode. People loved this episode. <laughs> like, really? people really thought this was good. Well, I, once, you know, I loved, like, all of the backstage mm-hmm. stuff and all of the heaven on earth stuff. I, I was a big fan of all of that. But there was just universal acclaim for this episode. Yeah, people, like, really, like, you know how um, most of the time I read something by Hilary Busis? Like, her mm-hmm. things are actually recaps. They're uh-huh. not technically reviews. Yeah. She was doing the recaps. Yeah. But she's just funny and snarky and stuff like that. Like, her recap is an honest-to-goodness recap. Like, there, like there's just, like, nothing... There's, there's like, nothing that's really critical of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in fact, Noel Murray had so little to say that he starts talking about the book that... Smash is very, very vaguely um, based on. The Garson Kanan uh, book. Have we yeah. talked about the Garson Kanan of we it? We have not. Um, I I have a secret, which is that I've purchased it. <gasps> you and did? I did purchase it. So perhaps if I can get through it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can do a very special episode yeah. where I go into that. Um, but Noel Murray, the in fact, uh, he takes really the... He just takes the opportunity to do a really big uh, shot at Catherine McPhee's acting. Apparently, he's been holding this back from us, and he just thinks that she's uh, pretty terrible, and he he thinks that she can't even answer a phone convincingly. Um, so, I uh, I quite don't quite agree with that. I yeah. think she's fine. I think and, she's fine, and, and I think a lot of the endearing. problem is that the part you know she's playing like such a a Mary Sue. You are misusing the term Mary Sue. Okay. <laughs> okay. I tried so hard. <laughs> a Mary, is Mary Sue a good thing or no, a bad a, thing? A Mary Sue is, is, a, is, it's really a thing that like guys on the internet say to criticize uh, female characters in the geekdom that okay. they don't like. Okay. You're ruining it. Ray. Okay. And now, um, yeah, Ray is like to them the ultimate Mary Sue. I'm just, how could you not like Ray? I mean, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was a little harsh and I've, I've, I've soured on Noel Murray a little because in this same article, again, this, there's so little smash lash to this episode that Noel Murray also decides to share with us that he doesn't like Shonda Rhimes. So, Apropos of what? Um, the, his train of thought was that Scandal premiered the same, like, you know, in, within the same 
uh, news cycle uh-huh. as, 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 this, as episode. this episode. And he just decides to share with the world that she doesn't like Shonda Rhimes, but this episode was so good that because there's some... Oh, because um, the director... Uh, that man he mentioned. Yes, that man I mentioned. Paul McGugan. Yes. Paul McGugan. Yes, okay. Paul McGugan. That now he would go watch the first episode of Scandal on the basis of how good this episode of Smash was. Because... But he wants it known that he doesn't like Shonda Rhimes. Okay. That seems, in retrospect, like a really bad thing to announce to the world. But, yeah. Well, uh, and also, like, what, you know... Like not- the only thing that this show has in common with Scandal is that both had women showrunners. Is that it? No, it's really it's just because the dude who directed this episode. Oh, also is directed. So good. This okay. episode of Smash is so amazing that he will watch that other episode of television. You know what? I despite guess despite his hatred of I- the most successful <laughs> woman on television in the last decade. Well, you know what? I guess this fellow was a sucker for an overhead shot, you know. Yeah. He likes that god's eye view, I suppose, of Ivy and her wings. I just I just I can't get over the fact that his hatred is for Shonda Rhimes, not saying like, I you know what? He could have said while not being a fan of Grey's Anatomy or I'm, I I don't know of private practice. Oh yeah, private practice had happened was you know, on for a while. At that point. Yeah, I mean, is it possible he hates the Britney Spears movie Crossroads that much that he's still holding it against Shonda Rhimes at this point? Hmm. I don't know. I'm just a little surprised that somebody would say Wait, that. So, but I know, ha- I know, it's a lot to take in. So, what is Paul McGugan's Paul McGugan relation di- to Scandal? He directed the, the pilot? pilot. Okay, all right. You said that at the beginning, and I forgot. So it's okay. Yeah. Okay, so um, I guess I suppose this must be the most universally beloved episode of Smash. Then I don't. Well, no. I did. Yeah, I like the Heaven on Earth stuff. Like, I mean, the pill stuff is just so heavy-handed it's to me, really heavy-handed. and it feels like it's something from like a nineteen fifties movie. Mm-hmm. You know, about like a woman's dark journey into a bottle of pills. You know, it's. There's just something that's so, like, melodramatic about yeah. it to me. But, you know. Yeah, also, too, if maybe we saw her taking more than one at a time. <laughs> well, like, you know. But, no, I remember the Burned at Peter's episode where, like, she took two and she swallowed them without any water because she was so accustomed oh to taking pills gosh. already. Even though it had only been, like, a week. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, yeah. But, um, and, uh, yeah, I liked that confrontation between Ivy and uh, Karen. All right. Yeah. So it's a good episode. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's like, solid. It's solid. It is solid. Yeah. Um, like with the whole like Julia Michael Frank of it all. Like. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean. But it's heavy on the Brian Darcy James. Which is. Good. Well, you yes. Know, I'm happy. He acts we, the hell out of those scenes. Yes. I'm happy we got as much Brian Darcy James as we got. Mm-hmm. But I feel like. I feel like the whole Julia, like, first, like, it was this rushed, you know, first, like, it was setting up that Julia and Michael have this, like, attraction, and then they finally succumb to their lusts and get together, and then they're together for, like, the blink of an eye, and then they immediately break up, and then, like, you know, she's gotten away with it, phew, phew, everything's fine, and then, like, Frank immediately finds out about it Mm -hmm. through, like, a dumb way. 
So, um, or I guess it was Julia's like subconscious, like mm-hmm. doing whatever. But like, I feel like if this had happened, like two episodes mm-hmm. further on, it would have had more impact in terms of we as an audience would have had a chance to take a breath and be like, oh, wow, I guess she did get away with it. But we don't go like even a single episode mm-hmm. without any Michael Swift. So like, I, I feel like if they had waited like even one more episode before this happened mm-hmm. to have an episode without any Michael and to be like, oh, wow, I guess, uh, I guess we're moving on. Yeah. And then to have this come up. But yeah, but you know, you know, we're weaving our threads together and that's mm-hmm. good. So yeah. Um, Shall we give out some awards? I think we should. So under five of the week. Okay. So I don't know if this counts as an under five performance, but given that cameos from actual famous people for a hundred percent sure do not count. I, I want to nominate Randall Jones. Oh, well, I'm going and to... And I know that he becomes, like, a semi-regular, or he... What's the... You know these, these better than I do. Um, like when recurring back, character. A recurring, recurring character. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm going to throw out that nomination just because he is, like, a recurring character sure. who we will see more but of. shout out to Sean Duggan. I, you've been in a lot of things. Yes. So. And... I see you. I see you out there. Yes. You were on Oz. Don't think I forgot about that. <laughs> and this was a great introduction to mm-hmm. a new character yeah. who's going to introduce an even newer character next week. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my under five nomination was the bored, tired casting assistant who um, Ivy oh. deals with when she gets to our audition like way, way late. Yeah. Yeah. Who's just like. Your appointment was at ten fifteen, <laughs> you know. All right. Yes, okay. I enjoyed. I enjoyed like you know. I think she had the perfect level of like boredom and annoyance. Excellent. Yeah, a true under five. Oh, and I wrote down her name. Oh, let thank me find you. it. Andrea Bordeaux, who also has like a very long filmography. Oh, like the region in France. Like the region in France. Okay. Yes. Okay. Cool. So, and now we have the least problematic man of the week. Yes, and um, I don't have any strong contenders, so how about you throw out some names and convince me? Frank. Frank is our least problematic man of the week. He did punch a guy. Uh, he punched Michael Swift. Ah, oh, Who well. has not wanted to punch Michael Swift? Yes. He punched a guy who slept with his wife. There's, that's just, that's, I just don't find that problematic at all. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Like, I originally, I had Sam or Frank, and I wasn't sure, but I, for me, problematic is being judgmental about medication. (laughs) Punching it, not problematic. (laughs) Yeah, I, mm, I, yeah, I feel... I don't have like any counter counter nominee to offer, but one should learn not to, you know, not to Sleep hit people. With people's wives? <laughs> <laughs> I guess one should learn both, but he went into that man's house. He had dinner with that man's wife and child. And then he slept with his wife. And he sang to her on their stoop. 
there was Donny Hathaway yeah. involved in this. Mm. I'm trying to think of another man in this episode who uh, who could uh, who could be a contender. Um, I feel like John is probably out for us for the no. rest of time. No. Oh yeah, no, John can never ever. Now that we know, no. Yeah, and Randall is kind of problematic because he is kind of trading sexual favors for um, access. Yeah, yeah, access to his that boss, is... whatever whatever yeah. Rebecca Duvall is to him, his client, mm-hmm. his boss. We're not really sure. He seems kind of like an assistant figure, though. I would say. He's yeah, we're a little fuzzy on like what his what his relationship I, to it Rebecca seems is. Like they are, um, like because. Th- I don't get that there's a power differential in this at all. Like that I see, I see Ellis and Randall being on the same, the same tier. Yes. And they're far enough removed. And and they seem like like in the same age range as well, you know. Because I didn't even, this didn't even flag for me as improper workplace behavior because they just felt, they seemed one appropriately, they seemed like I said they were on the same tier of power. They're the appropriate age, and they one yeah. They're just so Randall. I mean, yeah. I don't think Randall did anything unless banging a guy in your boss's apartment <laughs> is. Oh, you know what? I'll nominate Norbert Leo Butts for just doing a hell of a job. Well, I mean... No, we said cameos by super famous people are not but, allowed. But we're, t- we're not talking about under five. We're talking about least problematic oh, that's man. that's right. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. You're totally right. Norbert Leo Butts is just trying to get his job done, do his Broadway musical, get, get you know, inebriated people or, you know, altered people off the stage. Oh! Or that stage manager who not, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe just no one wins Least Problematic Man this week. You're really anti-punching. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to come out and say it. I'm anti-punching. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm anti-awarding punching. Hmm. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Okay. No, listen, I, okay. It, I, I love Frank. I, I acknowledge it's an act of violence. I'm just... And it's okay. We have yes. So I think I'm fine things. with Frank punching him, but I don't think I can reward Frank for fair punching him. enough. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Shoot, the bear in the hallway. You know. All right. <laughs> Let's give it to the, well. No, that's like we don't even know. We, we're assuming the bear's gender. <laughs> um. Oh, the the guy who thought Karen Cartwright was great in the audition. What about the guy, the piano guy in Times Square with, like, the dancing bear? Oh! Who just, like, kind of, you know, really rolled with it when uh, when Karen and Ivy, you know, decided to, like, sing along and make a whole little musical number happen? Yeah. You. Yes. You. Piano man piano with the dancing bear. Is that, like, a real, like, you know how Naked Cowboy became like a pop culture reference mm-hmm. but he's actually like he was actually you know someone who was in Times Square for a while yeah um is is 
was dancing this... animal guy like a real i don't know he i don't know i thought about that too but um i that that thought crossed my mind but uh i don't know i don't know the answer okay so but i think if he wasn't then like he was inspired by a, a real life one like naked cowboy or something like that you know yeah all right, so social media handles. Oh, yes. So we are at Talk and Smash, uh, T A L K I N. There's no G, Smash, S M A S H. And you can follow me at Nice White Lady underscores after nice and white. And you can follow me at Yellow Fairy 19 with an underscore between yellow and fairy. And uh, we do have a website where, you know, you can see the show notes with ease uh www.talkandsmash.com mm-hmm. so did we smash it we smashed it yeah. give me a kiss and cut print